0: Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode: Afrophone Home, Ngugi wa Thiong'o. Way back when we launched into the second of the three parts of this series of podcasts on Africana philosophy we noted that we were shifting our attention from philosophy carried on in indigenous African languages on the African continent to philosophy carried on by both continental and diasporic Africans in European languages. Slavery and colonization are so important to understanding the modern intellectual production of African and African-descended peoples that someone who expects Africana philosophy in the modern period to be produced mainly in indigenous African languages is someone who evidently needs to be educated not just about Africana philosophy, but about the modern history of the world. Once this context is clear, it becomes easier to appreciate the importance of firsts, who were the first Africans to publish their thoughts or express themselves artistically in European languages, like English. Back in episode 33, for instance, we looked at Phyllis Wheatley, the first Africana writer to publish a book of poetry in English, and for good measure one of the first American women of any background to publish a book of any kind. When the Kenyan subject of this current episode published his first book, Weep Not Child, in 1964, he became the first East African to publish a novel in English. You might wonder who beat him to the punch to become the first African from any part of the continent to publish a novel in English. As we noted in episode 71, credit for that first is often given to the Ghanaian J.E. Casely Hayford, who published Ethiopia Unbound in 1911 although that book's novelistic elements are sometimes set aside to make room for the exploration of philosophical positions. Later on, though, we get such classics of world literature as Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe of Nigeria, published in 1958. The huge success of this West African novel helped pave the way for the East African Weep Not Child, and we will spend time in this episode on the significant relationship between Achebe and our subject, He was known at the time that he published that first novel as James Ngugi. But importantly, by the early 1970s, he dropped the European name James and became known by the 100% African name Ngugi wa Thiongo. By the early 1980s, Ngugi had established himself as perhaps the greatest champion of Afrophone literature, that is, literature written in African languages. He has written a number of novels and other creative works in Gikuyu, his native tongue, and has defended this choice, Reflected on it publicly and with great philosophical depth. He is thus a first who came to reject the value of being that kind of first. If his publication of a novel in English in 1964 is symbolic of the importance of writing in European languages for modern African literature, his later stance points towards a future in which writing in European languages will finally cease to be the dominant method of communicating artistically and intellectually for Africans. Of course, this way of pointing toward the future is also a way of pointing to the past, to the time before the last 500 years, back when there was no reason to expect African thought to be expressed primarily in European languages. Ngugi was born in 1938 in a village called Kameritu in central Kenya. His ethnic group, the Kikuyu, also commonly known as the Kikuyu, is the same people ethnographically described in Jomo Kenyatta's pioneering book Facing Mount Kenya. It was in fact published the same year in which Ngugi was born. When we last discussed Kenyatta's book in episode 111, we mentioned his explanation of the formation of Karenga schools, free from missionary control and rooted in Gikuyu custom, inspiring Maulana Karenga's choice of his own last name. Ngugi himself went to a Gikuyu independent school called Mangu Karenga from when he was 10 until about 15, at which point the school was closed and reopened under government control. Then in 1955, Ngugi got into an elite boarding school Alliance High School. It is in the September 1957 issue of the Alliance High School magazine that we find Ngugi's oldest published writing, a short story originally titled My Childhood. In one of his memoirs, Ngugi relates the deflating experience of discovering that the published version of the story was not only given a new title, namely I Try Witchcraft, but also that there was an editorial insertion that had the fictional narrator assert that Christianity was without doubt the greatest civilizing influence and as it crept in amongst the people, many began to see the futility of putting their faith in superstition and witchcraft. The story was meant to poke fun at childhood superstition, semi-autobiographically depicting a child who believes he can summon any loved one by whispering the person's name into an empty clay pot, a strategy that ultimately fails. But with the editorial insertion, this light-hearted reflection on childhood was transformed into, as Ngugi puts it, a condemnation of the pre-Christian life and beliefs of a whole community. One can easily imagine how this early experience, this loss of control over his own narrative, shaped his later determination to write in a way that was truly free of domination by European perspectives. Nkuki has authored a number of memoirs in the 21st century, looking back upon his development into the writer and thinker we know today. Dreams in a Time of War, published in 2010, covers the earliest parts of his life, while In the House of the Interpreter, from which we have just quoted, was published in 2012, and covers his time at Alliance High School. These memoirs help us to situate Ngugi in relation to various figures and themes in the tradition of Africana thought. Someone who comes up often in Dreams in a Time of War is Harry Thuku, a Gikuyu activist who was the preeminent voice for African nationalism in Kenya in the early 1920s. As Ngugi notes, Thuku was deeply influenced by Marcus Garvey, that most preeminent of preeminent nationalists in the 1920s. When colonial authorities arrested Thuku and fired upon a crowd who were protesting his arrest, resulting in a massacre, Garvey spoke out about it in New York and sent a telegram about it to the British Prime Minister. Ngugi reflects on the possible impact of these events on his father, who was living and working in Nairobi, Kenya's capital at the time. Even the rural Karinga school that Ngugi attended can be related to Garvey's influence. Ngugi tells us that the founding of the earliest independent school in central Kenya was strongly influenced by Thuku's Garveyism. Furthermore, the Kikuyu-Karinga Education Association, of which Ngugi's school was a part, was religiously affiliated with the African Orthodox Church, which first came to Kenya by way of South Africa. Bishop Daniel William Alexander, a South African who seems to have been of Caribbean background on his father's side, brought the church to Kenya in the mid-1930s. As Ngugi points out, though, the church was first founded in the United States by an Antiguan and was a direct outgrowth of Garvey's movement. Ngugi writes, The American African Orthodox Church had been formed by another Alexander, Bishop George Alexander Maguire, who earlier had been chief chaplain of Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association. Little to no attention has been paid thus far to the fact that we can connect two of the major figures in Africana thought still living today, namely Maulana Karenga and Ngugi wa Thiongo back to Marcus Garvey through this crucial role of the African Orthodox Church in the independent school movement. While Kenyatta associated the Kukuyu word Karenga with being pure-blooded, Ngugi offers us an interpretation of the term that ties it more expansively to religious and cultural purification. He writes, Karenga was the self-chosen term for orthodoxy in both tradition and religion, Christianity would be shorn of Western propensities and tradition of negative tendencies, the African being the judge of the shape and direction of change. When Ngugi describes the takeover of the school by the colonial government, he laments the various ways in which African cultural nationalism receded from his education. Now, here's a pop quiz for longtime listeners. If Garvey was so influential, who was the leader that Garvey most famously cited as having been an influence upon himself? Kudos to those who recall that it was Booker T. Washington, with extra points to those who can name the book of Washington's that Garvey cites as having changed his life, Up From Slavery. This book is among the most widely read autobiographies in the history of world literature, so it is unsurprising that, as Ngugi was growing into an avid reader during his time at Alliance High School, he came upon several copies of Up From Slavery in the school's library. He was struck by the similarities he found between the American world, depicted by Washington, and the one he knew in Kenya. The thought occurred to him, the difference between colonialism and slavery seemed to be a matter of degree. Ngugi found his sense of determination and his thirst for education mirrored in Washington, but disliked his accommodation of structural racism. As Ngugi puts it, I felt uneasy about his asking black people not to agitate for social equality. Self-reliance and self-effacement were contradictory ideals. By judging Washington's program to be not merely wrong-headed but rather self-contradictory at its heart, Ngugi was unwittingly arriving at the same conclusion drawn in W.E.B. Du Bois's The Souls of Black Folk. Ngugi tells us that he was only later informed of Du Bois's critique by a pan-Africanist friend of his at Alliance. Alongside these connections to the wider world of Africana thought, the tumultuous situation in Kenya during his coming of age is another key to understanding Ngugi's development. Kenya was a settler colony, in which indigenous black Africans lacked the rights and privileges accorded to white settlers, not least with regard to land ownership. During the 1950s, a movement arose amongst the Gukuyu, which sought to respond to this racial inequality with violent resistance. It was known eventually as the Kenya Land and Freedom Army, or more famously, the Mau Mau. Through widespread propagation of the British perspective on the conflict, This more famous name for the group became synonymous with terrorism, bloodthirstiness, and irrationality. More recently, however, scholars like Caroline Elkins have shed light on the shocking brutality and large-scale injustice of the British response to the so-called Mau Mau Rebellion, or as it is also known, the Kenya Emergency. Elkins uncovered evidence that almost the entire Gikuyu population was detained at some point, and in some form, during the emergency. Terrible methods of torture were used at the prison camps where those suspected of involvement or sympathy were held. Whatever one's moral evaluation of attacks and killings by the insurgents, who in fact killed many more Gikuyus loyal to the British than they killed white people, Elkins points out that The murders perpetrated by Mau Mau adherents were quite small in number when compared to those committed by the forces of British colonial rule. After Elkins published her book on the subject in 2005, A court case against the British government by survivors of detention camps led to an unprecedented settlement by that government with the survivors and to the revelation of previously hidden government documents, further validating Elkin's account. Ngugi and his family provide us with telling examples of the difficulties and complications of life during the emergency. His older brother, Wallace, joined the Land and Freedom Army, while other brothers of his, by way of other wives of his father, found themselves on the Loyalist side, Agents of the colonial state. Another brother, Gitogo, was tragically murdered when he saw people running and followed suit. A white officer called for him to halt, but as Gitogo was deaf, he did not hear and was shot in the back. Ngugi's mother was detained, questioned, and tortured in attempts to locate Wallace. When Ngugi returned to Kamerithu from his first year away at Alliance High School, the village had been evacuated and destroyed as part of the government's efforts to disrupt the insurgency through the forced resettlement of Gikuyu people. In short, then, the war in Kenya in the 1950s shaped Ngugi in countless ways, and this fact set the stage for him to become the single most powerful voice commemorating the epoch in literature. Indeed, Weep Not, Child, the novel that made Ngugi the first East African to publish a novel in English, depicts a boy coming of age during the emergency, overlapping in various ways with Ngugi's actual experience. Among the historical events recorded in this important work of fiction is the interrupted leadership of Jomo Kenyatta, who returned to Kenya from his time as a student and activist in England in 1946. As leader of the Kenya-Africa Union, he became the foremost defender of African rights in the colony. This is dramatized in Weep Not Child, when Enjoroge, the main character, begins to identify the Gikuyu and other black Kenyans with the Israelites of the Bible, coming to the conclusion that, although all men were brothers, the black people had a special mission to the world because they were the chosen people of God. This leads him to infer that, because black people were really the children of Israel, Moses was known other than Jomo himself. In 1952, though, Kenyatta was arrested along with five other nationalist leaders and charged with being the mastermind behind the Mau Mau. This was a flimsy charge with no basis in reality. Kenyatta was for peaceful change. He was convicted nonetheless and from 1954 to 1961 was a prisoner and an example of the colonial administration's commitment to breaking the spirit of anti-colonial resistance by any means necessary Njaroge and other characters in Weep Not Child experienced Kenyatta's conviction as a serious blow. While Weep Not Child was the first novel that Ngugi published, it was not the first one that he wrote. The second novel he published, The River Between, was actually written first. Both novels were also composed not in Kenya, but Uganda, as they are products of Ngugi's time at Makerere University, located in Uganda's capital, Kampala. As we noted when discussing a previous graduate of Makerere, namely the first president of Tanzania, Julius Nyerere. this was for a long time the only institution of higher learning in East Africa. That was still the case when Ngugi arrived there in 1959. More recently, in 2016, Ngugi reflected on his time at Makerere by publishing a third installment in his series of memoirs, this one entitled Birth of a Dreamweaver, A Writer's Awakening. Framing the importance of this period of his life in the book's prologue, he writes... I entered Makerere University College in July 1959, subject of a British Crown Colony, and left in March 1964, citizen of an independent African state. Between subject and citizen, a writer was born. As Ngugi indicates here, the turmoil of the 1950s gradually gave way to constitutional changes in the early 1960s, leading to Kenya's independence in 1963 with Jomo Kenyatta as its first president. Gouge relates this momentous change to the fact that the early 1960s was a time of striving for autonomy for himself as well, intellectually and artistically. We are told in Birth of a Dreamweaver how arriving at Macerade caused him to think differently about truth. Back at Alliance High School, the faith-dependent notion of truth made it a pre-existing entity to be accepted, rather than something to be discovered with difficulty. By contrast, when pledging alongside his fellow new students at Macerade to... Seek the truth and study diligently, Ngugi could perceive a different notion of truth at play. It is a notion best expressed, he tells us, by Aristotle in the second book of his Metaphysics. Truth is difficult to attain, as demonstrated by the fact that no one ever has it in its entirety, but also not so difficult, because the combination of our individual efforts over time results in the attainment of a considerable amount. Ngugi thus describes the pledge as exhilarating, as if after living in the land of one truth, a colonial truth, I had affirmed the right to ask questions and contribute to a common pool of knowledge. Ngugi's development as an artist picked up its pace at Makere, to say the least. He got back into publishing short stories, he became a playwright, beginning with a few one-act plays before The Black Hermit, a full-length work performed at the Kampala National Theatre in honor of Uganda's independence. His turn to novel writing was inspired by a novel writing competition created by the East African Literature Bureau, a government-sponsored organization. He challenged himself to write something from the perspective of someone growing up in Kenya that would be as compelling as the depiction of coming of age in Barbados, in George Lamming's In the Castle of My Skin, a pioneering novel from the Caribbean, published in 1953. Lamming's novel so impressed Ngugi that he would later study it in-depth as a literary critic, and conclude that, Although it is set in a village in a period well before any of the West Indian islands had achieved independence, in the castle of my skin is a study of colonial revolt. Finding it hard to write about boyhood during the emergency, though, Ngugi ended up setting his first novelistic effort a few decades earlier, making the transition from girlhood to womanhood a major theme. This is because the novel is about that time of controversy over the right of female circumcision that first resulted in the creation of independent schools. The character Mutoni represents the controversy in a number of ways, as she rebels against her Christian father and seeks to be circumcised so that she can be a woman made beautiful in the manner of the tribe. An injury she sustains during the process takes her life, and she herself becomes a new focus of controversy between the two camps. How did it come to be that this first completed novel, known under a few other titles before it became The River Between, came out second? Explaining this allows us to bring up a major moment in Ngugi's life and in the history of Africana thought in the 20th century, the African Writers' Conference, held at Makerere in June of 1962. As Ngugi has pointed out, while the conference was hailed as the first get-together of African authors writing in English anywhere in the world, it built upon the work and examples of the Francophone-dominated first and second congresses of black writers and artists, held in Paris in 1956 and Rome in 1959, respectively. We discuss these events in our episodes on Nikertud and Franz Fanon. Recalling the participants of the 1962 conference in Kampala, Ngugi highlights Langston Hughes, that luminary of the Harlem Renaissance. As recent episodes of the podcast have shown, he continued to loom quite large in the world of Africana art and ideas in the 1960s. As Ngugi put it, Hughes gave the gathering breadth of geography and depth of history. Another well-known attendee whom we have discussed before would be Wole Soyinka, as we have previously noted, this is often said to be the conference where he made his famous criticism of negritude, a tiger does not proclaim its tigritude. The person who Ngugi was most excited to meet, though, was Chinua Achebe. In a report he wrote at the time, entitled A Kenyan at the Conference, published in Transition magazine, a respected literary journal based in Uganda, Ngugi celebrated Achebe's artistry as a writer. I wanted to meet Chinua Achebe, the young Nigerian novelist, whose two novels, Things Fall Apart and No Longer at Ease, seem to herald the birth of a new society in which writers, freed from the burden of political protests and jibes at a disintegrating colonialism, can cast an unsentimental eye at human relationship in all its delicate and sometimes harsh intricacies. In other words, Ngugi at this time valued Achebe's ability to show how African fiction can flourish when it is not weighed down by narrow political motives, but rather dedicated to the grand task of capturing humanity in its fullness. In Birth of a Dreamweaver, Ngugi admits that what excited him most about meeting Achebe was the chance to share his new writing project, which, as he puts it, had "...suddenly started knocking at the door of my imagination, after the submission of what would become A River Between for the novel writing contest." Ngugi would, in fact, win that contest, but that would not happen until November of 1962, and thus remained in the future when Ngugi had his time with Achebe in June. Achebe read the handwritten manuscript and provided Ngugi with critical feedback, but even before giving him the feedback, passed the manuscript on to a contact at Heinemann, a British publishing house. The iconic Heinemann African Writers Series, for which Achebe agreed to serve as editorial advisor, published Weep Not Child in 1964, and then The River Between in 1965. Acheve was thus centrally involved in launching Ngugi's career as a novelist. This alone would be enough to mark the African Writers' Conference as a milestone in Ngugi's life. It was made more significant still through an intellectual controversy that developed in its wake in the pages of Transition. At stake was the writing of African literature in English, the very topic that would eventually be associated with Ngugi more than any other thinker. Obviously, though, it was not yet him who was arguing that Africans should avoid doing creative writing in European languages. Obi Wali, a Nigerian intellectual, was not at the conference, but reacted to reports of what was discussed there in a piece published in the September 1963 issue of Transition. He wrote that the conference's most important achievement was demonstrating that African literature, as now defined and understood, leads nowhere. Wali was struck by how little of the output of the writers at the conference would be understood by local African audiences. He moved quickly to his radical conclusion, Until these writers and their Western midwives accept the fact that any true African literature must be written in African languages, they would be merely pursuing a dead end, which can only lead to sterility, uncreativity, and frustration. Another Nigerian writer, Gabriel Okada, thoughtfully weighed in on the language question in the same issue as Obiwali, arguing that it is possible and advisable to twist languages like English to local African purposes, particularly through translating idiomatic phrases used in African languages directly, rather than finding colloquial equivalents while writing dialogue. Okada closed his piece by asking rhetorically, Why shouldn't there be a Nigerian or West African English which we can use to express our own ideas, thinking, and philosophy in our own way? Then in 1965, Achebe himself joined the discussion, publishing a piece in transition entitled English and the African Writer and providing a whole series of reasons not to follow Wali in thinking of African literature and European languages as a dead end. We will concentrate on three points Achebe makes in the essay. First, the natural, realistic, and pragmatic choice is to accept that an originally colonial language like English may need to serve as the language of the growing national literature in a newly independent African nation. After all, he notes, the country which we know as Nigeria, today began not so very long ago as the arbitrary creation of the British. If we are giving up colonial inheritances, why would we stop with language? Would we not be compelled to also give up the countries themselves, given their colonial origin? How is all this realistic? Second, to abandon European languages would be to give up the benefit of being able to communicate across the globe. Achebe talks of traveling to Brazil and hearing from some of the writers he met there about the restrictions imposed on them by their use of the Portuguese language. Given that Portuguese is a global language compared to most indigenous African languages, why would African writers choose to restrict themselves to an even smaller audience? Third, while Achevi unsurprisingly affirms that Africans with indigenous mother tongues can learn English well enough to use it effectively in creative writing, he denies that Africans can and should aim to use the language like native speakers. The price a world language must be prepared to pay is submission to many different kinds of use, he writes. The African writer should aim to use English in a way that brings out his message best, without altering the language to the extent that its value as a medium of international exchange will be lost. Achebe thus envisions an ideal balance. African writers bring something unique to English while also benefiting from the global platform that English provides them. Two decades later, in one of Ngugi's most often read essays, he praised Obi-Wali for having pulled the carpet from under the literary feet of those who gathered at Makerere in 1962, a group that of course included Ngugi himself. Regarding Achebe and other pioneering authors, such as his younger self, the Ngugi of the 1980s, Now felt it necessary to say, what they have produced, despite any claims to the contrary, is not African literature. Acheve still stood out to him as a major talent, but this was talent in what Ngugi now preferred to call the tradition of Afro European literature, that is, the literature written by Africans in European languages. By contrast, this later Ngugi not only took himself to be contributing to African literature through his writing in Gikuyu, but also to be thereby doing his part in an ongoing fight for freedom. As he put it, I believe that my writing in Gikuyo language, a Kenyan language, an African language, is part and parcel of the anti-imperialist struggles of Kenyan and African peoples. How did Ngugi reach this conclusion? To answer that question, we need to mention three major developments over the course of his life from the 1960s to the 1980s. The first involves the intellectual impact of his time in the mid-1960s at the University of Leeds, where he pursued a master's degree in English. In Leeds, while studying Lamming and other writers of the Caribbean for his thesis, Ngugi's eyes were opened by reading Franz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth, and then the foundational figures of the Marxist tradition, like Marx, Engels, and Lenin. Meanwhile, he worked on his third novel, A Grain of Wheat, which would cement his reputation as a great writer when it was published to critical acclaim in 1967. Like Weep Not Child, A Grain of Wheat is a novel that struggles to come to terms with the emergency, but this time from a vantage point equally concerned with the meaning of independence. The novel depicts a village preparing to celebrate independence and suggests how complicated independence must be in light of conflict and mistrust, both between and within characters, all stemming from choices and divisions during the emergency. While it is not a simple thing to say how exactly Ngugi's readings of Fanon show up in A Grain of Wheat, It is telling that he later began to claim that one cannot understand African literature in the early post-independence era without a proper and thorough reading of the chapter Pitfalls of National Consciousness in Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth. In this chapter, Fanon warned that class divisions among the formerly colonized threatened to undermine the freedom promised by independence. When Ngugi claims that African literature in the early post-independence period can be read as a series of imaginative footnotes to Franz Fanon, he is certainly including his own A Grain of Wheat, which he has described as both a celebration of independence and a warning about those pitfalls. More generally, by the time Ngugi left Leeds, his perspective was fundamentally shaped by Fanon and Marxism, influences visible in various ways on all his art and thought since then. A second milestone came with his time in the late 1960s, is a lecturer in the English department in the University of Nairobi. Here, he joined together with two lecturers from the university's Institute of Development Studies to write an internal memo recommending the abolition of the English department and its replacement with a new Department of African Literature and Languages. Some referred to this act by Ngugi and his co-authors Taban Lo Liyong and Henry Owar Anyomba as the Nairobi Revolution. This may seem an exaggeration, in a century full of violent revolt both on and off the African continent, does it really make sense to apply the term revolution to academics sending a politely worded memo? But before we scoff at the dramatic label, we should consider the importance of educational curricula in the shaping of nations. A scholar of Ngugi's thought, Carol Sichermann, has argued that in hindsight, the memo is a founding document of the canon revision, endemic in international academia in the later 20th century. And Googie and his co-authors sought to establish the centrality of Africa in the university's offerings, on the grounds that education is a means of knowledge about ourselves. They proposed a model of education in which, as they put it, after we have examined ourselves, we radiate outwards and discover peoples and worlds around us. In the wake of the controversy stirred up by the memo, the Department of English was renamed the Department of Literature and did become more Africa-focused than before a Department of Linguistics and African Languages, was also created. When Ngugi published Homecoming, his first book of essays, in 1972, he included the memo as an appendix, bringing its bold vision of educational reorganization to a much wider audience. A third major development in Ngugi's career is even more obviously relevant to Obi-Wali's plea for African writers to write in African languages, namely that Ngugi started writing in an African language. It was a long time coming. As early as his time in Leeds, shortly after finishing A Grain of Wheat, he admitted in an interview for a student newspaper, I have reached a point of crisis. I don't know whether it is worth any longer writing in English. The first chapter of Homecoming is an essay called Towards a National Culture, which concludes, increased study of African languages will inevitably make more Africans want to write in their mother tongues and thus open new avenues for our creative imagination. Yet, by the late 1970s, Ngugi was still writing creatively in English, publishing his fourth novel, Petals of Blood, in 1977. The big change came with the second of a pair of plays that he co-authored around this time. First, with an old friend from Maquerede, a talented woman named Michele Gitai Mugo. He co-wrote a play in English called The Trial of Dedan Kimati. It made its debut in Kenya in October of 1976, ahead of its performance as part of Kenya's contribution to Festac in Nigeria in February of 1977, though Ngugi himself does not seem to have made it to the Legos for the festival, unlike many of the figures we've discussed in past episodes. This play is important for its explicit valorization of the Land and Freedom Army, the so-called Mau Mau, through a heroic portrayal of Field Marshal Dedan Kimati, the most famous leader of the Resistance, who was captured by the British and executed in 1957. In a preface to the published version of the play, Ngugi and Mugo wonder why it has taken so long to see this kind of artistic celebration of the heroes and heroines of the struggle. Why were our imaginative artists not singing songs of praise to these heroes and heroines and their epic deeds of resistance? The play fits into a controversial pattern some critics have discerned in Ngugi's development. James Ogude, for example, has argued that Whereas in the earlier novels N'Gugi captures the moral complexities of the historic war, in the later works the Mau War is singularly seen as the ultimate expression of Kenya's anti-colonial struggle. The contrast here is often made in a way that suggests N'Gugi sacrificed nuance for the sake of a radical political stance. Such criticism notwithstanding, there's no doubting its impact at the time. Another critic reports that, one of the enduring memories of the premier production of The Trial of Dedan Kimathi the image of hundreds of black Kenyans spilling onto the streets of downtown Nairobi from the confines of the National Theatre triumphantly singing Mau Mau songs. The Trial of Kimathi makes for a useful contrast with another play, I Will Marry When I Want. This is its title in English translation, as it is actually called Gahika Ndeida. Like The Trial of Kimathi, it was co-written with a colleague from the University of Nairobi, but this time a man, and indeed another Ngugi. His name was Ngugi wa Miri. The two Ngugis aimed with their play to comment on neo-colonialism, specifically the ongoing dispossession of the Kenyan peasantry by a local ruling class who were in cahoots with foreign corporations. Ngugi, that is, wa Thiongo, has recently admitted that he and the other Ngugi were part of the same cell of an underground Marxist-Leninist organization called the December 12 Movement, named after the date that Kenya became an independent republic in 1963. In that sense, the political perspective of the play was predetermined by the activism of its authors. But, as Ngugi has explained, it was the special circumstances of its production that caused the play to represent an epistemological break for him as an author at the level of language. The two Ngugis composed the play for performance at the Kamerithu Community and Education Cultural Center, located right in the community where Ngugi's family had been relocated during the emergency while he was away for his first year at Alliance High School. They worked together with community members in a collaborative process that provided Ngugi with what he considered the most exciting six months in his life. Central to the process was the choice to produce the play in Gikuyu. As he put it, the question of audience settled the problem of language. He furthermore enjoyed the way that he and the other Ngugi ceased to be the sole authors of the play. I saw how the people had appropriated the text, improving on the language and episodes and metaphors so that the play which was finally put on to a fee-paying audience on Sunday, 2nd of October 1977, was a far cry from the tentative, awkward efforts originally put together by Ngugi and myself. If this transformative experience finally brought Ngugi to the point of learning to write creatively in Gikuyu, what happened next is key to his decision to use that language for all of his creative efforts going forward. Sometime in December of 1977, two government officials came to see President Jomo Kenyatta with copies of Petals of Blood and I Will Marry When I Want explaining how they were subversive and highly suspicious. Performance of the play was banned and Ngugi was arrested on New Year's Eve 1977. He was charged with possessing banned books, although that charge was never substantiated, and all books seized from his study were returned. He was held in prison for about a year, becoming well-known as an international case of a prisoner of conscience, with Amnesty International campaigning for his release. Ngugi's 1981 memoir of his time in prison, entitled Detained, reflects on Kenyatta's legacy in the wake of the president's death in 1978, while Ngugi was still in prison. Ngugi draws a contrast between Kenyatta and Amilcar Cabral, who we covered in episodes 115 and 116. Ngugi writes, A leader of the People's Movement, who is of petty bourgeois origins, training, or position, must, like Cabral, recognize this reality if he's going to transcend it by consciously rejecting his class, to find a true and permanent regenerative link with the people. Kenyatta, in Ngugi's eyes, was a petty bourgeois to the core, who never consciously rejected that class base, even while righteously fighting colonialism. Ngugi concludes, My reception of his death was then one of sadness. Here was a black Moses, who had been called by history to lead his people to the promised land of no exploitation, no oppression, but who failed to rise to the occasion, who ended up surrounding himself with colonial chiefs home guards, and traitors, who ended up being described by the British bourgeoisie as their best friend in Africa. But there was something else that struck Nkugi while he was in prison, reflecting on the experience of doing those two plays. He thought to himself, wait a minute, I have been writing in English over the years, and nobody ever bothered with me. I write one play in Gikuyu, and I'm detained. This led him to a decision about what to do next. As he put it, I would attempt a novel in the very language which had been the basis of my incarceration. Like Martin Luther King Jr. before him, Ngugi found himself composing a work on prison toilet paper. In Ngugi's case, the novel Shataini Mutabairani, known in English translation as Devil on the Cross. This was the first of four novels that Ngugi has written thus far in Gikuyu, and having traced his career up to the point of this change, we will close this episode by exploring some of what Ngugi has said in defense of this change, and in support of other African writers joining him in making the choice advocated by Obi-Wali. For this, we can turn to his 1986 book, Decolonizing the Mind, the Politics of Language in African Literature, perhaps his most famous non-fiction work of all. It appeared in English, a language Ngugi has continued to use in non-fictional works. Here, he takes up a point we saw Gabriel Okada making in that same issue of Transition that published Obi-Wali's call to write in African languages. Okada argued that African writers can construct a local version of the English language by translating expressions from indigenous tongues. Okada called it a fascinating exercise to consider how he might arrive at the nearest meaning in English for any expression in his native tongue, Ija. To this, Ngugi responds, Why, we may ask, should the African writer, or any writer, become so obsessed by taking from his mother tongue to enrich other tongues? Why should he see it as his particular mission? We never asked ourselves, how can we enrich our languages? Audaciously, Ngugi makes his case for the use of African languages partly by extolling the value of translating European and other non-African works into African languages. Why not have Balzac, Tolstoy, Sholokhov, Brecht, Lu Sun, Pablo Neruda, H.C. Anderson, Kim Chi Ha, Marx, Lenin, Albert Einstein, Galileo, Aeschylus, Aristotle, and Plato in African languages? The colonial condition inculcates an undervaluing of African languages, and African writers should fight against this, rather than simply accepting that colonial languages will retain their position of prestige. Engugi develops a theory of language to support his view, which relates two functions of language, communication, and culture. Communication is ultimately based in the cooperation required for the production of goods to meet human needs. Over time, communication gives rise to culture, which Ngugi defines as those moral, ethical, and aesthetic values, the set of spiritual eyeglasses through which human beings come to view themselves and their place in the universe. Colonial domination of African peoples, which is ultimately an attempt by the colonizers to control the production of wealth by African peoples, centrally involves domination of the mental universe of the colonized, the control through culture of how people perceive themselves and their relationship to the world, When African children are taught to write in foreign languages, they are alienated from their immediate environment and oriented toward Europe as the center of the universe. It should now be clear how Ngugi relates the cause of using African languages for writing to the goal of total liberation from European colonialism. Ngugi concludes, We African writers are bound by our calling to do for our languages what Spencer, Milton, and Shakespeare did for English, what Pushkin and Tolstoy did for Russian, Indeed, what all writers in world history have done for their languages, by meeting the challenge of creating a literature in them, which process later opens the languages for philosophy, science, technology, and all the other areas of human creative endeavors. Of course, we'd like to second Ngugi's inclusion of philosophy on this list, and we'd also like to warn against a possible misunderstanding of what Ngugi is proposing. He is certainly not saying that Gikuyu speakers should produce literature only for one another, and so on for every group of language users. He says in another book of essays called Moving the Center that he is an unrepentant universalist and that he is all for having works from every language translated into every other language. Thus, an English or French or Spanish or Swahili student should at the same time be exposed to all the streams of human imagination flowing from all the centers in the world while retaining his or her identity as a student of English, French, Spanish, or Kiswahili literature. But what about the more pragmatic argument given by Achebe? African authors would benefit from writing directly in a language that can be appreciated by as many readers as possible, which means writing in a global language like English. Ngugi concedes that it is useful to have a language that can be read all over the world, and in fact points to the similar fact that in an African context, Kiswahili has the advantage that it unites many people from across East Africa. The problem with English is connected to the very way it became a global language It is spoken all over the world because it was exported as part of the process of colonization. This is not true of Swahili, whose power as a language has not depended on its economic, political, or cultural aggrandizement. It has no history of oppression or domination of other cultures. So yes, says Ngugi, let's have a shared means for communication across the globe, a language for the world, but let's have it be Swahili. While not denying the cogency of Ngugi's argument here, we don't have much choice but to continue bringing you this podcast in English, insofar that is as we continue to bring it to you at all, which we won't be doing for the rest of August, because the podcast will be on its summer break. But it will be well worth the wait to rejoin us in September when we resume, because we'll be speaking to an interview guest who can fairly claim to be the world's foremost expert on Ngugi wathyongo namely Ngugi wathyongo here on The History of Africana philosophy. <laughs>